0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thank you so much for listening to Classical Ideas. If you'd like to support this show... You can find the link tree to all of my work in the show notes of your podcast player. Within the link tree, you can financially support the show, locate different podcast players of choice, and find social media links to help spread the work I do here on this show. Any way you can spread the word is deeply appreciated. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As a parent of a now seven-year-old, I've thought about good books, stories, and other kid-related things for several years now. As I dabbled in children's literature while doing this podcast, a book from Wisdom Publications popped up in my email newsletter after I did an episode about the Zen teacher Sokeon Sasaki, It was a beautifully illustrated cover of a children's book called The Day the Buddha Woke Up by Andrea Miller with artwork by Rima Fujita. Miller and I connected on Twitter and we completed an episode together over that book for episode 83. Shortly after, on episode 99, I did an episode with Rima Fujita, who discussed her techniques for creating the stunning visuals found inside the board book. After the episode with Rima, I was then connected with Chef Eric Repair of La Berna Den in Manhattan, New York City, as well as the Netflix series Avec Eric, and we made episode 112 together. I consider this such a fantastic aspect of the way this show has gone from year to year. One guest leads to the next, and a network of creative and interesting people come into my orbit. I owe that little trio of episodes to Andrea Miller, who is back on the show again to talk about her brand new book, Awakening My Heart, Essays, Articles, and Interviews on the Buddhist Life, which is out now from Pottersfield Press. Andrea Miller is the deputy editor of Lions Roar Magazine, a Buddhist publication known far and wide. In this conversation, we catch up since our last episode, discuss Awakening My Heart, and talk about the work of being an editor and the differences between being in the interviewer chair as opposed to being interviewed. We discuss experiences at the retreats of Thich Nhat Hanh, interviewing the primatologist Jane Goodall, and much more. You can follow Andrea Miller on Twitter at Andrea AndreaMillerSon, and you can follow me on Twitter at Classical Underscore Ideas. So without further delay, please enjoy the return of Andrea Miller to the Classical Ideas podcast. Andrea Miller, welcome back to Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Greg.
0: I'm delighted to have you back. It's been a while since you were here, and uh, last time we spoke about your children's book, and today we're going to be talking about all kinds of other things. But um, just for, to get us started, um, in case anybody listening doesn't know who you are, can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself, however you see fit?
1: Sure. So I'm the deputy editor of Lions Roar Magazine. I've been there since 2006. Um. As you mentioned before, I'm also a picture book author. We were talking the last time about my picture book the day the Buddha woke up. Um, I've also written uh, another book about birds called um, My First Book of Canadian Birds." And I have a new book out called "Awakening My Heart," which is a collection of essays and interviews and articles about the Buddhist life.
0: Wonderful. Well, um our first conversation, also had some wonderful uh, after effects for me. I was able to interview Rima Fujita, who did all the artwork for the picture book. And then through Rima, I was also able to talk to Chef Eric Repair, which both of those conversations to me were absolutely fantastic. And you were sort of the catalyst for getting me in touch with both of them. So that was just such a delight. I love when those things play out. You know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that that worked out.
0: It was so fun, so fun. So, since your day job is so relevant to the foundation of the text that we're going to be discussing, um, your new essay collection, can you tell everybody a little bit about what you do at Lions Roar every day? Because I think that'll be super important to the conversation that we're going to have regarding the book.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I do a lot of different stuff, and in in fact, it's that variety that makes me really love my job. Um, I'm a staff writer, and so you know I spend a lot of my time coming up with ideas for stories and interviewing people and researching the stories and writing those stories. And of course, um, this is a Buddhist magazine, so basically everything that I do is related to Buddhism in some way. And that sounds like it might be very narrow, but it's not. It actually has, it gives me a lot of possibilities. For material. Um, I also work with other writers so people send us in submissions which I read and I also frequently invite writers and Buddhist teachers to write on particular topics um, and I edit and I used to be really stressed out about editing. I used to really worry that the writer wouldn't like what I was doing to their piece mm. uh, Yeah. Um, But now I love it. It's such a, such a relaxing break for me. It feels like doing a puzzle.
0: Awesome. Well, and what's really funny is whenever I sent over some ideas for our conversation today, you sent me back some wonderful ideas. And at which point I was like, oh my gosh, it is so wonderful to be edited because, you know, so that doesn't really happen too often for me here on my, you know, my, my do it yourself podcast, but it was just such a wonderful way to help me tweak some of the ideas that I wanted to talk to you about. And I was like, aha, yes, Andrea is an editor. How fantastic is that?
1: Yeah, I can be a bit compulsive because of my job, Um, you know, if somebody sends me a document, even though I'm not going to send it back to them, it's not going to be published. I find myself adding hyphens, correcting the spelling. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a problem.
0: yeah well and earlier we were talking and you said that you know it's sort of a a switch for you to do a podcast like this because you are usually the one doing the interviewing can you tell me a little bit about that shift in dynamic and how you see appearing on a podcast as opposed to being in the interview chair how that differs for you
1: well i find it much more stressful to be interviewed um yeah, it's just a it's just a lot easier to ask the
0: questions. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree. And like I, like I said earlier, I was uh, I've been interviewed on a few podcasts myself, and it's such a different dynamic. But I'm so glad that you're back because you know now that we know each other, we have this rapport from you being a guest on the episode on the podcast over a hundred episodes ago. I know, I think which is surreal. So I love that you're that you're back and that you like my show enough to be willing to uh, to revisit with me. So that's Wonderful to have you here.
1: I love your show. I, I find that your interviews are so meaty. Like you really go into depth with people.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's the best hobby I've ever had. I that's how I describe it. It's just so tremendously rewarding. But let's get into your book. So you have this new book out called Awakening My Heart: Essays, Articles, and Interviews on the Buddhist Life. And the list of work within the book is super impressive. I was looking at your guest list. There's Sopranos actor Michael Imperioli, music legend Tina Turner, the primatologist Jane Goodall, a collection of essays about attending three Thich Nhat Hanh retreats. Can you tell me a little bit about the body, uh, about the collected body of works that you accumulated over the years that were considered for inclusion in this volume? Where did you start this process?
1: Um, so how I went about choosing which, which pieces I was going to, to use for the book. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm just curious, like what you, what your process was whenever you decided you wanted to do a collection because you have so much out there already.
1: Yeah. So, well, coming up with, you know, choosing which pieces I was, which, which pieces I was going to publish, um, you know, it, it's not a sci. It wasn't a science. It was a very subjective process. I chose the pieces that I like best, um, and I was really trying to get a lot of texture and variety for the reader. So, so trying to find different types of material because I write a lot of different in a lot of different types of, I guess you could say, genres, and also um, various types of topics. So, for example, there's a lot of like there are a lot of straight up journalistic pieces in the book, um, And an example of that would be, say, the profile I wrote of Gina Sharp, Mm -hmm. who is an American Insight teacher um, who does a lot of diversity training. And um, she focuses on how even in very liberal, progressive communities, such as Buddhist communities, that are very well-meaning, there can be a lot of, you know, often very subtle, a lot of very subtle racism. Um, that confessed her and she talks about how we can address that and and heal so that that's an example of a journalistic piece and then there are a lot of other pieces that are journalistic but they have uh kind of a lot of me in them too they're more they have a more personal flavor so for example um there's an article about attending a retreat with Pema children or or for that matter the there's a braided profile the, the that's the article that actually starts the book off it's a braided profile of zen teacher bernie glassman mm-hmm. and hollywood's jeff bridges and then um the maybe the i'd say the third type of article or m- piece of material in the book there's creative nonfiction and um one example of that is i wrote this kind of quirky piece about bringing the teachings of Dogen, you know his text, instructions for the cook, which is meant for monks in monastery kitchens and how to go about cooking in that environment, to bring that wisdom into my own galley kitchen. And then the final type of material in the book is Q and A's, um, and there are Q and A's with people that are well-known such as uh, Tina Turner or Ram Dass or others. But then there are also Q and A's with people who are much less well-known like say Simon Critchley, who's a philosopher who wrote a book about the different ways that philosophers have died over the years and what that can teach us about death.
0: Interesting. Was that was it challenging for you
1: to decide these pieces? Well, challenging. Yeah. Like
0: were, were there any that you're like that you left out that you were like, oh, I really wish I could put that one in?
1: Yeah, there were some pieces like, like for example, Bernie Glassman died after um, I did that piece about him and Jeff Bridges, and I ended up writing a commemorative piece about him. And I kind of wanted to include that too, but I didn't want to have too much on the same general topic, so I left it out. so gotcha. you know, and then there were some like i I've done a lot of interviews over the years with novelists because I really like novelists yeah and, and I didn't want to overburden the book with that.
0: yeah, I love it well, um. So all of these were all of the pieces, works that had previously appeared in Lion's Roar. Were these all things that had already been released into the world, like before the book came out?
1: They were, except for the introduction.
0: Okay. So was there any? That's something I'm curious about. So you take these this body of work that's already been released in other forms, and then you bring it all into a a one spot, kind of like how a band or something would do like a Greatest Hits record. Um, So where, you know, you would then go on Spotify and then a band would have all of their best songs in one spot. So I almost see this as like Andrea Miller Greatest Hits Volume 1. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Okay. So I'm curious if there was any revisions or tightening up, like how does an essay collection get reworked or shaped for book form? Was there anything that went into that process?
1: Well, I think there are lots of ways you could go about that. Um, In my case, I didn't really do much to to the pieces. They had already been edited and worked on a lot by me, so I just kept them as they were. Um, As I mentioned, I, I did do the introduction. I added the introduction to the book, and that's where I think I tie the material together, tie it all together, and I make clear what my relationship is to the material. Um, so that is my relationship to the Bodhidharma.
0: Excellent. How does an editor such as yourself go about getting edited? You mentioned that all these pieces have been you know, looked at over the time before they were going into the magazine. How do you as an editor like seek advice from other people at the magazine? How does that look for you?
1: Um, well every editor needs an editor, every writer needs an editor, and that includes editors. Um, So uh, the editor-in-chief of the magazine edits my work, and he is an absolutely amazing editor.
0: Mm. Within Awakening My Heart, there seem to be a few threads or themes that give each chapter a place and a flow within the book. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about the sequencing that you went through to to make the book flow in the way that it does.
1: Right. Yeah. So I actually think putting it putting it together, like deciding on the sequence, was a bit like putting together a magazine. You know, that that's actually part of my job. Mm. You know, we we have meetings where we discuss what order are we going to put this material in. Um, so it's kind of like that. Um so and that's that's not a science. That's an art. It's a thing that comes from your gut. Like sure. What, what feels good together. Um, so, uh, for example, uh, in relation to the book, there were the three pieces at the end about uh, my different retreats uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh. And I decided to put those together and put them at the end of the book uh, because they, they felt really like they had to go together. If I wanted to have all three of those pieces in the book, they really had to sit together as a little Um, So, but but other than that, I was really focused on kind of giving a lot of variety and texture for the reader. So to keep keep mixing things up. So if I had um, some articles that were written in a similar kind of format, I didn't put those together. So, for example, there are a few pieces that are little mini profiles of three people in a particular field. So for example, there's one article that profiles three Buddhist-inspired writers, another that profiles three Buddhist women teachers, and then there's another one um, of artists, Buddhist artists. So Those are the same basic instructions, so I didn't put those together.
0: I I really love the way you just described that because... There's, there, there is a flow and like it's a page turning book to me because it constantly does switch it up. And I hadn't really thought about the connection that since these were originally pieces in a magazine that the book might be laid out in like sort of a magazine way as well. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And I actually really like the way that feels. So I'm really glad that you were able to articulate that for me so nicely. Thank you. Um, so what are the three like I know that you have some themes within the book that sort of tie it all together. How do you see the themes within the book that that run throughout?
1: Yeah. um well, first of all, I'd like to say that I think every human being has a few topics that or maybe maybe even more than a four, maybe even more than a few, but like they have a few topics that they're really interested in, and they want to. Keep coming back to that. You know, those are the movies that they, movies about that thing they want to watch over, watch again, or it's, it, it, they just have, everybody has their passions. And I think writers are so obvious, you know, they're, they're <laughs> writers put down their interests on the page. So yeah, I do have particular threads in my book. And um, one of the threads is, I think, the creative life. You know, I'm really interested in talking to, visual artists and actors and singers and especially writers um, I, I really like hearing about what inspires them and what the creative process is like and also because um, you know i work for a buddhist magazine i'm always asking people how does your buddhist practice um, inspire your creative practice and vice versa and Another theme that I'm always returning to again and again is um, talking to people who are doing inspiring work to make the world a better place in some way. And um, another theme is nature. And often that manifests as me writing about animals. Um, I just think that they're a really dynamic way to explore nature
0: wonderful well, we will dive into all of those in just uh, a little bit and something that was really taken with me uh, that really captivated me within the book are the interview sections and your your interviews in the book are quite wonderful and as somebody who prepares for interviews myself i i really come to i've really come to understand that i don't have any training to do what i'm doing right now And it's just something that I've come to do. And I'm wondering if there are any tips on interview prep or like ritualistic approaches that you take when you are preparing to interview somebody that maybe you really look up to, you know?
1: Yeah, um, it's always the same sort of process for me. Um, I always read as much as I can about that person that I'm going to interview. Or um, I read stuff that that person has actually written. And I just write down questions as they occur to me. And then during the interview, I ask the questions that I came up with in advance. But I'll also ask spontaneous questions that come to me based on whatever it is that the person says. And um, I really like interviewing because, well, I guess in a positive sense, you could say I'm really deeply interested in people. Mm. I wanted to put it another way, you could say I'm nosy. (laughs)
0: Nice. Well, and something that really jumped out at me as well was that you mentioned that you talked to the primatologist Jane Goodall on the phone. And that was an interesting point to me because her interview appears in print, but you spoke to her over the phone. So I don't publish print versions of my interview that appear on this show. I just don't have the resources to do that. But After you complete a a recorded interview, we, your readers, don't hear the audio. We just see the print version that appears in the magazine or in your book. So what is your process like for getting what might be a meandering phone interview into like a publishable format in the written form?
1: You were the first person to ever ask me this. Mm. (laughs) So um, I call my process uh, in my own mind, since I've never talked about it before, yeah. combing through it. Ooh. Um, and I read the interview again and again, the transcript, and each, each round I trim bits of, you know, I made a whole paragraphs, um, certainly extraneous words, and um, I change the order of questions, and I just clean it up. And the final product, um, it's still true to what the person said, mm-hmm. uh, but it reads a lot better. And, you know, like nobody wants to actually read an interview that sounds like natural speech. Mm. We're, we're not used to that. Um, m- media, let's don't do that. You know, you don't want to read something that's full of you knows or ums or right. like, <laughs> Um And yeah, so... I just want to make it nice and readable for people so that they can actually enjoy it and get something out of it.
0: Well, and the thing that I was thinking about is, you know, whenever you come on this show, we can talk for 45 minutes or an hour, but then your Jane Goodall interview is so concise and so well phrased. And I was like, there must have been a tremendous amount of work to get this tiny interview into this unbelievably concise format. (laughs) Like that, that was just so such a, a light bulb moment for me. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, shortened. I mean, maybe I talked to her for maybe it was a half an hour.
0: Sure, yeah. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit more to the contents of the book. You start the book with an admission that Buddhism didn't appeal to you first because of what you call the quote, the dour note on which the Buddha's teachings began. And this is something that immediately resonated with me because my high school students in the past have struggled with how to react to the first noble truth. And they would read it and say, but it's so negative. And we'd all have a big laugh in the classroom, you know what I mean? But if you were me teaching that class, how would you respond to my 17 and 18 year old students? Because I feel like you were exactly in the position that they were in.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh people often talk about Buddhism as having a PR problem and that's definitely true you know um the four noble truths the central teaching of the buddha the first truth is dukkha so that's suffering and that is not an appealing place to start um but it makes sense to start there um you know if you want to fix a problem uh or an ailment you really have to begin by recognizing it or diagnosing it um so the problem that the First Noble Truth is diagnosing is that we suffer. And maybe if you're, you're an average 17 or 18-year-old, or really most people, you're thinking, that's really extreme. Uh, you know, I'm not suffering. You know, maybe, um, maybe I'm hungry a little, a little bit hungry, or maybe I'm a little bored or maybe i'm jonesing for a new phone or whatnot but no one's cutting my foot off right Um, and that's exactly right so translating dukkha as suffering is not entirely accurate and that's one of the problems the original term actually encompasses anything from extreme suffering to vague dissatisfaction um But the thing that's really interesting about the Dharma is that it goes way beyond that initial, there is suffering, that dour note. Um, The teachings aren't saying that everything is terrible or hopeless. The ultimate message is actually really hopeful. Um, According to the Buddha Dharma, there's a way to free ourselves from suffering and dissatisfaction. And there are eight concrete actions for doing so, and that's the Eightfold Path. So it's actually really hopeful if you just take another look at it.
0: Excellent. Well, and I'm also curious about your own dabbling in spiritual learning that led you back to the tradition, which at first glance seemed to not be the right fit for you. How did you go away from first, that first negative experience and wind up coming back?
1: Um Well, let me back up a little bit um to before I first encountered Buddhism. Mm, yes um, so when i when I was growing up, I was a Catholic and i I didn't come from a religious family, but I happened to have a friend when I was in grade primary who wanted me to go to Sunday school with her, and so I did, and I got into it, and I prayed every night until I was in junior high when i just realized I didn't actually believe. Um, and then maybe the next year, so I was still in junior high, I got into paganism and uh, with a lot of emphasis on the goddess. So I was really into you know like women's spirituality. Um, and then that kind of fell away too after sometime after I graduated from high school. I guess I felt like if there really is a higher power. Why would he or she care if I was having a full moon ritual or not? Um, so that, that was my thought. And I know people will have people will have different feelings about that, but that was where I landed. And then um what I think really made me reconsider Buddhism was that I just started to notice how life works and how the mind works um you know we're always wanting something and then we get it and we're happy for a hot minute right and then we're wanting something else and um, and also the realities of sickness old age and death started to to creep in i i think when you're really young if you're if you're healthy it's kind of easy to feel immortal and over time I kind of had to recognize that I wasn't, or at least I had to recognize the people I loved weren't. Mm.
0: Well, and something that I really pick up on from you, and earlier you mentioned your appreciation for nature and animals as well. But, um, you know, I really enjoyed the animal thread and the nature thread that runs throughout the book, too, which emphasizes the natural world, nature, and wildlife, and throughout the book, you have the the chat I mentioned with Jane Goodall, but you also have Buddha's birds, dear to the heart, and does my dog have Buddha nature? And so I get the sense that this is a great sense of comfort for you. And mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can tell me about your ongoing fascination with nature and what keeps you returning to this topic as a theme within your book.
1: I have indeed always loved nature. Um, I guess I became conscious really conscious of that fact when I was around 12. Um, at that time I lived in the suburbs, kind of the edge of the, the edge of the suburbs. We lived on a lake and it was a, like a narrow lake that was more like a that looked more like a river and on the other side it was woods. And when I was 12, a friend and I we got this idea that we would go surviving. That's what we mm-hmm. called it. And we would go into the woods. We would stay overnight out there with just our sleeping bags. We didn't bring a tent, and we didn't bring food. And we would try. And I have to emphasize the word try. Out <laughs> here. We yeah. would try to go back to the house for food. So we had an edible plant book of Nova Scotia, and we found like cinnamon ferns and sweet fern, and we made pine needle tea, and we picked berries. And I just loved doing this, and it it really opened my eyes to how dependent we are uh, on nature for everything and that we're not apart from it and it also just opened my eyes to the sheer amazing beauty of nature
0: Mm. well and within your book i've mentioned the chat with jane goodall a couple times but Her work seems to be doing exactly that, bridging that connection and showing us the ways that different species are a lot more connected than we may at first think. But I also noticed that that conversation with Goodall did not contain actually specific Buddhist references, which was lovely in and of itself as a piece about connections and interconnectedness across the species, And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the Buddhist notions found within your conversation with Goodall that lie beneath the surface of that conversation.
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, Jane Goodall is not a Buddhist. I just want to be clear about that. Um, So um, that said, the backbone of the Buddha Dharma is observations about the truth of how things are. The, you know, the nature of reality. So it's really easy to find what seems like Buddhist ideas or concepts in, in everything, in movies and books and philosophies and, and modern science. Um, so my interview with Jane Goodall, um, in that interview, she doesn't use Buddhist terms. For example, interbeing. But, but it's there. She's talking about it, just using different words. Um, she talks about how we inter-are with trees and how they help us by removing CO2 and pollutants. And she also talked about um, what people can do to help the environment. And this is related to intervening as well. She, she points out that a major problem is that so many of us feel helpless and like there's nothing we can do to make positive change in this, in this dire situation we're in environmentally. But actually we all make a difference every single day. And so we just should consider our choices because if we all did that, then we could, or even if just a lot of us did that, we could affect really huge change. And then another Buddhist concept that she talks about is compassion, Um, you know, it's a major theme in Buddhism. And uh, in Jane Goodall's case, she was talking about how animals demonstrate compassion. And and she gave a really, really touching example. She was talking about um, an infant chimpanzee, his name was Mel, and he was an orphan. And orphan chimpanzees, if they have an older brother or sister, that that sibling will kind of adopt them, look after them. But Mel didn't have a sibling like that. So, you know, Jane Goodall and her team, they really thought that Mel would just die. Um, But then he was adopted by another chimpanzee named Spindle. And Spindle was unrelated. And in human terms, he was maybe like 15 years old. Um, And he adopted Spindle and he like cuddled with him at night and he gave him food and he protected him from the other apes. Or sorry, the other chimpanzees who were maybe being aggressive. Mm. Um. So he basically saved Mel's life. So there was some, there was real compassion there.
0: Yeah. I really loved that, that chapter on, on little Mel. And uh, you know, it was very, it's very moving and touching the way that, Oh, how much we can learn still from different species on the, who shared this planet with us. It's really beautiful. And I also noticed that you, like me, are a dog lover. And you compared your childhood dog Raffi to a Dharma teacher within the book. And I'm curious if you can just tell me a little bit about Raffi and you know what he taught you about about life.
1: Sure. He was a he was a character. Mm-hmm. And he did teach me a lot. Um, first of all, um, I would say that living with an animal, not just Raffi, but other animals, makes it really clear that all sentient beings just want to be happy. And of course, happiness looks different to different creatures, but we, um, but we all have our needs and wants. And um, dogs, though, are actually a lot like people. You know, dogs and people just want to be loved, we want to be safe. And of course, we have our physical needs for food and shelter. And um, I think that once we know how much we have in common with dogs, we can start to understand how much we have in common with other animals. And if we're open to it, then our compassion can grow to to other sentient beings. And then yeah. also, I would say just um, another thing would be that you know, Rafi really lived in the moment. And um, when you know, t- when chasing a ball, he was just chasing. Yeah. And when he was barking at the TV, he was just barking. He was right there. And one last thing I would say about Raffi as my Dharma teacher is that he gave me an experience with impermanence. Uh, Raffi lived a long time for a dog, but even the you know. The dogs with the greatest longevity, they live a lot for many fewer years than humans. So you get to see their puppyhood and their old age and death play out. And so, yeah, it was an indication to me that life is not infinite.
0: Yeah, my seven-year-old daughter recently had her first experience with death when our 16-year-old dog um, just took a turn for the worse pretty much out of the blue. And she had that experience this summer. And I know that she'll never forget it as long as she lives.
1: How did she take it?
0: She was very sad, but she still talks about him. And my next door neighbor, who is an artist, painted a portrait of him and gave it to us as a present afterwards. And it is now hanging in my daughter's room. So she still talks about him a lot. But she knows that he's gone. And she knows that she loved him. And she knows that he loved her. And uh, that's kind of... It, it's really kind of a beautiful um, learning experience, you know?
1: Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And so earlier you also mentioned your your book about Canadian birds. And you have an essay titled Buddha's Birds within this book as well, where you recount your discovery of birding as meditation, which I loved. And Buddhism is also rife with stories involving birds from swans to geese to roosters. What is your favorite Buddhist bird lore? And how does it inspire you when you're out in nature doing some birding yourself?
1: Mm, Yeah, I love a lot of buddhist bird lore um, but my favorite story i think is of ikkyu and the crow and so ikkyu was this really eccentric zen monk and poet and he lived in japan in the 15th century and one day he was um rowing a boat on lake biwa and well and meditating he was meditating and he heard a crow calling. And you know, that's just a really ordinary sound, but it helped him achieve enlightenment. And so I'm a bird watcher, and I think it's easy for bird watchers to kind of fall in the trap of wanting to always see birds that are new to them anyway, or rare. Um, but the story about Icu's crow, it kind of shows me that all we have to do is pay attention and then these so-called ordinary birds are actually really extraordinary. So I try to enjoy the common birds. Sure, I, I have to admit, of course, I do like rare and birds too. And mm-hmm, birds yeah. them soon. I have to admit that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to enjoy the common birds, and um, particularly birds that live in the city with me. So one thing I really love is, uh, you know, if we're talking about crows, I love how in the early evening a whole flock of crows, huge huge flock of crows, they fly home to roost and they they pass exactly where I live. So that's something I look forward to to seeing that. and um, and then I also love seagulls. I love seeing how the a seagull in flight and the light glinting off of it and um and pigeons. I even love pigeons and sort of how they have these nice shimmering necks and their cooing and their funny little walk. I love all of those things. And, and yeah, and I think these birds, these, you know, these ordinary birds are reminders that all sorts of ordinary things are wonderful.
0: You know, it's really funny that you mentioned crows and we came off of the example of talking about my dog and your dog. One of my favorite pictures with my, my old, my old pup who passed away this summer was that he has a crow friend who lives in our neighborhood. And so this crow would stand in the yard with my 15, 16-year-old Westie. And they would just stand in the yard together and just hang out in the grass. And so my friend, my little Duffy, had a crow friend that would just come and sit in the yard with him. And it was just really a beautiful thing. And I have a few pictures of them together in the yard that I will cherish.
1: That is sweet. I love it. Species, friendships of all kinds.
0: Absolutely. Well, and you have one more animal-centric essay in the book, which is, you know, part travel diary, part history lesson. And I was delighted of reading of your experience in Nara, Japan, because my mentor, George Frizzell, who inspired this podcast, I named the Classical Ideas podcast after George's class that he taught at Hickman High School in Columbia, Missouri for 30 years. But George went to NARA and he took a ton of pictures of nara's deer and shared them with my religious studies classes and it was a great shock to me uh, but when you went to nara it was like a great shock to you when you went about the deer and george went he's like i'm gonna see the deer and he went and he did it you went to nara and you didn't know the deer were there which is fantastic <laughs> Tell me a little bit about this unexpected encounter with Nara's deer and what rabbit hole of learning that sent you down afterwards.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I went to Nara. I was teaching ESL in Japan. I did that for a year after I finished university. And I don't know how I missed the, the information about the deer. You know, I, I looked at the guidebook. I guess I wasn't looking at it very carefully. I love it. And um, I got there and I, was, I started to see deer in the city. And I was just shocked. And, you know, all of these people on the street were kind of looking at me like really kind of amused because I seemed so surprised. Um, but um, I think... Afterwards I started, I thought about it. and I was thinking how I I missed the information about the deer in the guidebook was kind of indicative of the way I thought about deer in general. And that is, I didn't think about them. Um, They just were not a kind of animal that really felt like they had anything to do with me. Like, you know, a dog, I love a dog. Love snuggling with a dog. salmon you know I can get excited about that if it's smoked or an insect I really hate insects like um you know obviously I respect the role that insects play in our world but they give me the creepy crawlies Mm -hmm. um so they I just didn't have a strong feeling about deer um I mean I know them as symbols of the hunt and you know they're the victims of it and that just didn't really appeal to me. But coming face to face with all these deer in Nara kind of planted the seed in me to actually think about them and think about them both in terms of symbols and also as living, breathing creatures. And really, that's something that has come to interest me about all animals, this tension between the symbolism we assign to the animals. And then how that doesn't necessarily connect to what they actually are. So, so you know, pigs, pigs, we, we see them as gluttons, or they're snakes, we see them as evil. And birds, birds are symbols for so many different things. You know, we see in them vanity, freedom, stupidity, and, you know, etc. Uh, but none of these ideas that we have about animals necessarily say that much about them. But they're like, are, these ideas are like a mirror. Um, they sort of show us something more about ourselves. So in my essay, Deer to the Heart, I delve into what deer are like as animals, actual animals, um, and also their symbolism, and particularly what they mean in Buddhism, of course.
0: Wonderful. Well, and you know, earlier you mentioned about the closing essay sequence about going on retreat three times with Thich Nhat Hanh, and I would be remiss if we didn't talk about that at least briefly. Um, since 2019, I've been reading articles about the state of the Venerable One's health, and I think it's important to give you some space here to discuss what those experiences have meant. Being able to learn in person with Thich Nhat Hanh, can you tell me a little bit about what this series of experiences, which you document in three essays, has meant to you in the big picture of your life
1: yeah this is a um, this is funny to talk about this it's quite personal and um I know I wrote it I wrote all of a lot of this down but it's so funny when you know you're writing something you're writing something in the privacy of your own room it doesn't seem like people are reading it somehow although I mean I know people have read it mm-hmm. <laughs> but it feels different when you're actually talking about it. it feels a little weird but anyway putting that aside let mm-hmm. me die. Um, when I went on that, that my first retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, um Thich Nhat Hanh, my father had died left like, uh, maybe four years before that, and I was still pretty cut up about that and and also feeling angry at him um so he left when I was about four and um, kind of took off and and he just wasn't terribly attentive after that and he was an alcoholic, and there were issues. But I mean, we we had an outwardly fine relationship, you know, a friendly relationship. But there were there were issues. So the retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh helped me to work out some of my feelings. And I don't want to give the impression when I say that that it was like some sort of silver bullet. You know, I went on this one retreat, and then uh, I was all better. Everything complicated on my relationship just sort of cleared up. It wasn't like that, but it did help and and it continues to help. and I, I guess I was really touched by what Ty talked about about how we are a continuation of our parents, which was actually a belief that my father held. Um, and I didn't really see it until going on this retreat with Ty. but so Ty was saying that even when our parents are dead, they continue to live in us and and sometimes that's a really wonderful thing. You know, there are so many ways, you know, hopefully there are so many, all the ways that our parents are, were good people or are good people and loving us and taking care of us and doing positive things in the world. Um, those things planted good seeds in us. But all humans, I, I, I would say all humans have a negative side as well. So whatever kind of personal challenges our parents had, those things planted negative seeds in us. And the important thing is that we can, we can actually let go of the negative seeds and we can just water the positive seeds. And when we do that, our happiness grows. And that means, according to the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, that the parents that we have within us, you know, the father that that still lives in us or the mother that still lives in us will also become happy. And so we heal them and we stop passing our parents' bad seeds on to other people, be it our children or our students or, or, you know, just people, other people we know or encounter. And then, Mm -hmm. and then, but besides that, so that was a really big thing that I really talked about in, in my first Article about about going on retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, but besides that, Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings have informed my life in in many small but significant ways, and and I'll just give one small example of that, and that is the fifth mindfulness training, which is his um, way of talking about the fifth precept, and traditionally the fifth precept is thought of as, you know, don't consume intoxicants. So don't drink alcohol or do drugs. But Tai expanded that to encourage us to look at everything we consume. And so that includes media. Um, and it just made me think about what I consume in terms of media. And I realized that I really don't like watching violence on television. So Mm. I I was watching like shows on TV supposedly for my relaxation and they were actually really stressing me out. Um, So now I don't watch violent television. (laughs) Mm. Uh, Yeah. It makes me a lot happier not to do so.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that you could have this, like, you know, this sort of new realization as well, obviously, because that's a different interpretation of that precept, which, I really like that because now I'm thinking about, I'm wondering if that's happening to me as well. And maybe I'll pay a little closer attention next time I'm allegedly trying to relax. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So what are you working on next?
1: Uh, well, I'm working on several stories for Lion's Roar. And the one that I'm, up to my eyesballs with at the moment, <laughs> as our press date is looming, um, is a story about Western tulkus. Uh, so, that is people who, all boys actually, um, who are now their men, who are not of Tibetan heritage, um, who were recognized as the incarnations of Tibetan Buddhist masters. So my story is focusing on Tulkus who were recognized as children and some of them were actually sent to India as kids to get a traditional monastic education there. So they, they have pretty interesting stories. And then another story that I'm working on and it kind of ties in with my fascination with nature is I'm working on a story about Buddhist scientists and so far I have talked to a climate scientist, an astrophysicist, and a paleontologist.
0: That sounds awesome. I'm really excited by that. That'll be really cool. Well, Andrea, I have absolutely had a wonderful hour talking with you today. Uh, I'm especially excited about uh, about your new book and this collection that you've put together, I found it to be absolutely delightful. And I'm really glad that we could finally get this in the, in, the, uh, in the works today. I knew that we've been scheduling this for quite some time now, and I'm grateful to you for your patience, um, obviously. Can you tell the listeners where they can find you if they want to find out more about your work or follow you uh, anywhere?
1: Well, I would um, recommend going to Lions Roar, uh, Lion, Lions Roar's website, and also checking out Lions were print magazine.
0: Excellent. Fantastic. Well, Andrea, this has been a wonderful conversation and I'm super grateful to you for spending some time with me today to come back on Classical Ideas.
1: Thanks, Greg. I had so much fun.